welcome to the Urban Athlete Podcast, episode one today, and it's been a long time coming. We've got a pretty long episode today with Sam Ford. So a little bit of background on Sam. Sam is a local footballer and football fanatic, uh, which led him down the path of getting his A license, coaching badges, and today we're going to discuss all things related to football. So we're going to kick off with Sam's playing and coaching experience. Before we take a deep dive into his philosophy of coaching, how to create a winning culture, and then we're going to have a little chat about local football in Newcastle, including some of the players that Sam would love to work with and mentor. At the tail end of our conversation, we're going to discuss his long-term ACL injury and the mental and physical battles that he's had to face during his two years off with his ACL rehabilitation. This episode is jam-packed full, but don't worry, there'll be plenty more of Sam to come as he's going to co-host our future footballing episodes on the podcast. We hope you enjoy the first episode, and here we go with Sam Ford. So just a quick brief history on playing experience, coaching badges, licenses, and then your experience coaching. Well, I've got a playing experience first. I just... so I wouldn't really say it's much of I would the experience would be the countries I played in. Um, I first started playing football when I was three years old in Brunei. That's where Dad was working, and I went to boarding school in England, um, and that was sort of the making of a man, I guess. Um, I went to boarding school. I started working after that. That's when I first started playing any first grade football, like competitively. When I was in Brunei, um, with mum and dad when I was living there it was never competitive it was always schools and stuff we started tournaments and stuff but nothing too big um and then yeah I moved to England uh, and England was an eye-opener for me because everyone was just so fit so strong and I was still so skinny and so small so it was like a big shock to the system sort of thing um and then what brought me to Australia essentially was I had a trial in Dubai did the trial um had a had a scholarship offer to go to the States or I could come to Australia. I didn't want to study anymore, so I didn't take the scholarship. And that brought me out here. And the very first club I was at was Singleton, imagine. Um, I had no idea of the landscape or anything in the country. Um, and that was it. But in between all of the playing, I started my very first coaching badge, which was the level one, which is you don't need any prior experience. You just go to it. It's just like a community course. Yeah. And I started that when I was, I think I was 16 or 15, turning 16. And I started that course. It was the first one I ever did. Two years later, I did my C license. I did that in England. So it's a bit of a funny one. I did my C license in England, but it was a two-week or a nine-day course. You had to go away for six, six months, do a set of coaching clock your hours and all that sort of stuff and then you would come back and you would finish off the last exams um now what happened with me and dad was we were living in brunei at the time and we did our the the level c or the c license we did that in the uk um so what we actually did was we paid for the coach to fly out to brunei and he assessed us in brunei um and then the b license and c uh, an a license that i did the b license i did in brunei it was uh, it got, I got really lucky because what happened was Brunei were having trouble with within AFC. They weren't complying with certain rules and stuff. Governing bodies have set rules that you have to 
have to like follow sort of thing. Uh, FFA would have the same thing. Every you know, all governing bodies would have it. Much with anything weightlifting, there's something. There's a there's a path that you got to follow. Yeah. And if you deviate too much, someone would audit you. And Brunei got audited and they sent two Singaporean guys to basically fix up everything football-wise in Brunei. And both of them had pro licenses and they were able to teach the courses. Um, and at the time I was playing in the league and one of the guys approached me and said, would you be keen on like doing some coaching? I stuck out like a sore thumb there because I was the only foreigner playing. I was the only foreigner in the league. Everybody else was Brunei or a local. I was the only foreigner there. So, like, every time we played, um, all the names you could tell were all local names, and then mine was Sam Ford. So I just, like, stuck out like a sore thumb. And then they came and approached me, and they asked me if I wanted to do a course, and I said, definitely, like, it's something I want to do. Did my B license. AFC have a different way of doing it. All the governing bodies are different. UEFA, AFC, even in Scotland it's different. FFA is different. They're all the same. They try and say that it's different. For money reasons, you have to pay to get qualifications yeah. changed and everything. But I did my B license. Um, great experience. Three weeks. That that course is three weeks straight. Um, bit arduous. A lot of exams in the AFC one. You have to do like written exams and stuff. Then the A license was my very first year here in Australia. So I played the season, done coaching in between it. I'd done the two weeks of the course, two weeks of the A license before I come to Australia. Got a phone call, came to Australia, played a season here, and then the season finished, and luckily um, it coincided with the exact time when I could do my A license or finish it. So I flew back, um, two four, was it two? It's two two-hour exams, and it's all written, handwritten, and then there was three practical exams. Practical exams um, were the hardest, hardest ones because the two guys that took it were very. This is how I want it done, sort of thing. And that's probably the thing I learned the most from doing my coaching badges was more of the fact that when you coach, there's no right. Of course, there's a right and wrong way to do certain things, but people's coaching methods are so different. But when I was doing the course with them, they wanted it to be done their way. Yeah. So I had to change the way that I was to to pass. Um, How did their coaching philosophies differ to what you see in Australia? When... See, when you're doing the courses, it's not so much philosophies. It's like the way to deliver a session. So they would, whenever you're doing a coaching course, it's never, philosophy is literally out the window. That's all in the written stuff. So when I was doing my written exam, I write well, so it was really easy for me to translate what I was thinking onto a bit of paper. I could literally think of how I wanted stuff psychologically, physically, and all that. Because so, in, in the exams, you have, to th you have all of that. You have to answer a question on psychology. You have to answer a question on mentality and all that sort of stuff. It's very different. Whereas in the UK, you don't have to do that. Um, I'm pretty sure the FFA here is slightly different as well. Um, but it wasn't so much their philosophy. It was the delivery of how you did a session. So you would come in. Let's say we did a passing drill. Someone made a mistake. You would stop. You would address it. You would rehearse it. And then you would run it. And that was how you would have to do it. And so many people got confused because they would stop. And like, when you're stopping a session, when you're doing the exams, you got to stop it. You literally got 10, 15 seconds to explain it, notify the issue, change it, rehearse it, get it, bang, gone. Because they want you to be time, yeah. time friendly so that you're not wasting time. Well, yeah, you wouldn't want the team and the, and the flow of the yeah, training exactly. to be damaged but, by that. When you coach outside of that, you stop and talk for ages, yeah, and, and it's something time. you notice. Yeah, you got no time, but but yeah, that was the A license, and then 
Um, my second season started here in Australia and I got a phone call and I was 20, 21 years old at the time and then I got my A license at 21, turning 22, which was really, really young. I, was, I did it the other way around. Normally people will play professional football or play football, do it at the end of their careers. I did it the other way around. What originally got you into coaching? What was the passion for coaching? Because obviously my, you've got your playing career. That's what you would have wanted to focus on. Why coaching? Um, two reasons. So the reason I wanted to coach was dad. Dad was always coaching and stuff, and I wanted to be able to help. But the second reason was, and it was always at the forefront. It was always the main thing. My dad was like a driving force, but the reason we did it was um, it just opens the door for so many possibilities. So when I, when I was at Singleton, like um, I applied for jobs in Melbourne and Heidelberg and clubs like that, and they're big clubs. And they had coaching roles available. So I, I'd, I'd emailed Heidelberg, I'd emailed South Melbourne and all that. All of them replied for coaching because they seen A license and it was like, bang, we got a kid that's 22 years old at the time. An A license, it's unheard of to have one at that age. It's rare. So they're going, Christ, this must, and, and it opens a door. Then when I say I'm interested in playing, it becomes yeah. a different kettle of fish because now they're going, we have to fit a foreigner in and... It, but we're after the coaching sort of thing so that's why I did it because it opened the door for playing um, and it's, it's plus it's one of those things I've done it I don't have to worry about doing it again yeah did you find that your age having such a high level license at that age did you find that people didn't respect it as much 100%. and sort of judged you for being so young 100% it's like anything you could be, you would know this in the strength and conditioning industry, you could have all the knowledge in the world, you can't get experience without time, you need time to get experience, I understand that, um, and it's probably less frowned upon in strength and conditioning and other industries, in football, if I were to turn around, you imagine I turn around and tell the next professional footballer that I might know as much about the game as he did, like there's no doubt that I understand the game well, but if I turn around and I look at Frank Lampard, and he's talking about football, and then I start talking about football, even if what I say smarter or is the same, no one's going to deem it that way. Yeah, it's one of those things you have to have an authority to yeah. over that, not necessarily yeah. over that person, but you have to have the ability to... You have to be respected. You have to be, respected you have to be seen on the same level. Yeah. And I, I found that personally because of my age, obviously I try and improve myself mm. professionally as much as possible and feel like I have knowledge beyond my years beyond qualifications and i still find that sometimes it's like i i have to sort of respect the older yeah. person because they've got that level of experience yeah. it is hard to well, combat since it. i've been here i've never played for a coach more qualified i played for a coach that's got the same qualification never more qualified when i was at western i was i was hoping i would have had the chance to play in the queue queue out his a license and his knowledge his abundance of stuff would have been great great to to learn from but with but with my visa and stuff, I wasn't able to stay. He told me, look, if you're going to cost me 20 points, I can't keep you. Um, if you're going to be like the normal standard, because I wasn't Australian at the time. I didn't have permanent residency, so I cost 20 points. And he wanted yeah. to bring his own imports in. And it's fine. I understood that. But it, it annoyed me because I was like, I miss out on a year of learning from him. I spend a huge amount of time um, watching MPL games like I've got my PC at home and I've got notes on almost all the players in the league that I did yeah. when I first did my knee I just started taking notes because I knew eventually I would coach in the league 
So I said to myself, I don't want to be coaching and then have no idea who I'm speaking to. I want to know who the best players are. I want to know what the best 11 is. I want to know the up and coming kids and all that sort of stuff because it preps me. I don't want to have my first year of coaching because I know my first year of coaching, it's upon me depending on what happens with the knee. Um, I could be coaching first grade players at the age of 30. There's going to be guys that are older than me, guys that I'm also very good friends with to have to have authority you know what I mean? And I, like I have a big ego when I'm coaching. I'm very, I'm demanding of what I want. And I know what's going to happen is some kid's going to turn around and go, what have you done? Who have you played for? And stuff like that. So it's managing all that sort of stuff. But that's it to is, be expected. Yeah, it is hard. And yeah. it's hard to create that authority in, in that culture. But I guess that comes down yeah. to what you know, mm. how you then portray that. Yeah. And then the respect that you earn from yeah. your ability to delivering coach. delivering a session is the biggest thing like when i coached the under 16s uh, at weston some of the first grade players would come and i remember it was like at the time it was regan lundy jordan jackson liam um liam would come along uh there was a few other boys and we were all at weston at the time and and, and regan had just come from the jets and we were doing this we were doing this passenger it was nice and simple and he's turned around and he's gone oh, this is like we've done this stuff with the jets and i've gone like i, I like i expect this stuff to be done by every coach or anybody who's sort of um, been in football for a while, but it's not the case. But like, I, I can't get upset with people who don't have an A license or a B license because they're expensive, they're time consuming, you have to do it around work. I wasn't working at the time. Yeah. That's why it was perfect for me to do it. Uh, but I have like, and not an issue, but I, I, I find it, the fact that I'm frowned upon because I'm younger, instead of using me as like a, I'm not saying that I have to be there going, do this, do that, but Pick some ideas from it. I've never been someone who's like, like we talk about gatekeeping. I'm the complete opposite. Ask me. The more people know, yeah. the better the teams get, the better the environment. Is that, are the drills and sort of training methods that you use that might be more advanced than what people have seen locally, are they things you've picked up from playing or from your licenses or? Uh, when I was in Brunei doing my... A license I got the luxury of training with uh, the Brunei national team now everyone in the Brunei national team I played football with played football against or had been good friends with at the time now they had a guy called Kun he was Korean um, he had his A license and he barely spoke much English he didn't speak the local language of Malay and without question he was the most he was the coach that I enjoyed playing under the most. His because he couldn't speak the language. He had to deliver a session through minimal, minimal, like the language barrier was so big. So we had minimal communication. He had to use boards. And I'm not a big fan of that. I hate people who use the boards and point this and point this, you know, put the little markers here and there because players just looking at it going, it's just a, it's just a rainbow. Yeah, and it's not like football where it's ever changing. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a set play it's a set which play, never yeah. happens. Exactly, yeah, it's like anything. Now, you can use it to prepare for a session and stuff, but it was amazing to me because he had to translate what he was doing with minimal English, minimal Malay, and but enthusiasm was through the roof. And he had enough, enough English in him um, to be able to relay the messages that he wanted, but the sessions were so much fun. But in terms of like... Because I learned stuff from him and I learned stuff. I learned, I, I'm, I'm one of those, I learn a lot of what not to do from, yeah. from coaches. There's a few that I pick up, don't get me wrong, I'm always going to pick up stuff like 
um, boys were telling me that when they were playing on the queue, there was stuff that he did. And I'm like, great, I'm going to use that. I'm going to think of that. I'm going to, you know, it's because nobody creates stuff anymore. Everybody copies or everyone steals something. And there's no shame in that. But it's trying to implement it. But in yeah, terms the- of like drills and stuff that I've done, some stuff is complex. Like I'm yet to play um, under a coach where I've seen drills and I've gone, oh my God. But that's not any fault of theirs or any advancement of mine. It's just you've got two days a week here. Whereas when I was in Bruno, we were training every night with the national team, obviously. So we could do something different every night. Whereas here, you can't. Players have work and all this sort of stuff. Those guys there were playing full-time football. Yeah. Well, I guess it's one of those things. That's where it comes down to the art of coaching. You don't necessarily have to pioneer anything new. It's the same as the fitness industry strength and conditioning yeah. you're never pioneering no. anything new it comes down to the delivery mm-hmm. and it sounds like the kun the the coach that you yeah. had he understands that the art of coaching and the ability yeah. to adapt to multiple learning styles that isn't just verbal yeah it can use yeah. demonstration yeah. he can use more tactical and and mm. sort of visual feedback to get his point across without just barking at players. Yeah, well, he never screamed. He, so it's real weird. When he when he was talking, you would deem it as screaming because of his accent. He used to, I used to love him. He used to, he, when he was there, he used to scream. This is literally what he would say. He would because because he because he was Korean, obviously, and he used to stand there. And players at first would laugh because they thought it was like they thought it was like a hoax. But he would stand there, and if he was going passing, he would literally go. Ooh, passing. That was how he said it. And of course, all the players were laughing and stuff, and he knew that, but he, it never affected him. He used to just play on it. And it's, and it's literally a thing. It's he, he, like he never took himself too serious. He had a job. He demanded, like, play, fitness was a, like it was old school with the running. It was let's just smash the running like nothing else. And you could tell because the national team that he was coaching, they also had, they were called Tabwan Muda, and they played in the league. They played in the league, and they were the um, the basically the national team setup, bar the guys, the professionals that were playing in Singapore at the time, um, and they played in the league. And while other teams, I was lucky enough, I played for Indra, and that, it was us, the army, and Tabul Muda. We were the three best teams in the league. They were always the fittest. You could just tell their running power was phenomenal. They looked like they were professional footballers essentially. Yeah. They were professional footballers that were just young kids, but. There were 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, and I was 20 at the time, and like I'm not getting bullied by a 16-year-old when I'm 20 or 22 and I'm gymming up. Like, I'd, I'd, like you know what I mean? They may run, they may have 90 minutes worth of legs in them, and I was fit at the time, but it was, they were, the fitness and all that sort of stuff, the delivery for that, he got top-notch. But it was, his language barrier, while it was great and he could deliver stuff, that barrier stopped him from being able to translate into getting the real technical side of stuff. But that also comes. You've also got to remember, and this is every standard of football, in order to deliver a technical, you have to have the player that's capable of doing that. Pep Guardiola doesn't coach Swansea and turn them into Barcelona. Yeah, definitely. It's, you got to, it's like what we've discussed so many times. You've got to have the personnel to play 100%, the style that you want. 100%. And that, that's when the coaching can happen. When, it's, yeah. when you have the group of players that you want, and you know the plan, then the coaching starts and you get people on board. Do you know what's really funny as well is the better the player, the less coaching you have to do. It's more man management because you get more, the egos are bigger. You got, you take Man City, for example, Kevin De Bruyne, you got Raheem Sterling. These are, they're all great players in their own right. 
Bernardo Silva, Gabriel Jesus, who's like he was a sort of a fringe player. He's, they're still phenomenal footballers. Phil Foden, unbelievable. And it's not so much, and Pep Guardiola touches on this. He goes, it's not, I don't need to coach him in the final third. Same as, same as Mourinho. Mourinho was more um, like methodical when he did stuff, but Pep Guardiola was, he gets his football to a certain point and he lets fabulous footballers do their thing. And it's man managing players, allowing a player to believe that he's capable. What Ferguson was great at. And I think that that's something that like local football here misses. You don't need to be a great coach. You, but you need to be, if you're not going to be a great coach, you have to be great at getting someone who's an okay footballer to believe that they're capable of being a world beater. So what would you say are the most important sort of aspects to being the coach that there is? Well, you need to know, you need to be set on the way that you want to play. And you have to be realistic in terms of, if let's say for example you want to play a high pressing style of football okay because there's so many different variations environment's always number one environment and this doesn't matter what style of football you play the environment needs to be there because if players want to train and you'll know this players will turn up early if if you demand them to be you say i want to be ready by 6 30 p.m give them a reasonable time because i know people work i want to be ready by 6 30 p.m when i say ready i want to be ready like if i say we're playing 90 minutes from 6 30 you don't need to warm up because that's what 6 to 6.30 is. That's, that's your own time. The environment debates whether players are going to do that. It negates whether they're going to start doing stuff like that. After the environment, it's the direction that you want to go in and how you're going to get there. Now, there's no shame in playing a certain style of football depending on the personnel that you have. Adamstown can't play the same way Jaffers do because the personnel's so different. But there's no shame in playing dirty, long ball sort of football deem it whatever you want to call it compared to four thousand passes in a season sort of stuff so being realistic and and your players need to be on board with that and then the final thing and i touched this like the last time we spoke is you need to have fun no i don't there aren't enough players who enjoy playing i know so many guys that just play because they're happy for the money which is fine but it's also really difficult to take this standard of football that's here and get players to get here when then you're not all on the same path. I'd rather a 16-year-old who is chomping at the bit to play football, who's really keen, who wants to go home and say, Mom, I played first grade today. Mom, I played reserves and I was on the bench. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. That matters. But that all comes from the environment that you set, the path that you want to get to, and everyone being on the same page. Yeah, well, and that all comes down to the culture that, yeah. that you set. Culture's and, the biggest thing. And that always... You look at the best teams, that always comes from the top and yeah. comes from the coach. And it's like what we've said previously, every team is a shade of oh, what their coach you are is. Built, you are built in the image of your coach. Every You tell me a, a, a top 10 club now that isn't built and, and the man behind, man behind the shadow or man behind the curtain isn't mimic them. Atletico Madrid, they are nasty, they're tenacious, they foul, they're dirty. Then you look at Simeone on the sidelines, grabbing his... He's nuts. Absolutely nuts. And his team mirrors that. Klopp, energetic, smiley, happy. Then you look at their team. It's energetic. It just, it just loves being out there. He's got great players, but they, are, they play for him. If he said jump, they say how high. Yeah. Then you've got Pep. And they're all environments that breed the best results, but they, oh. they, they appear the best cultures to be in. 100%. Every player wants to go and play for 100%. a Man City or a Liverpool because it looks fun. It, oh. it, 
the environment's there mm. and obviously at that level everything else is the other thing as well that people don't realize is football is a hobby for so many people it's a hobby for us we i know we get paid to play and stuff or players get paid to play and that's great but how many players enjoy going every single week like like and i don't want to start bashing teams and stuff but if you turn up every single week and you lose every single week you're going to lose enjoyment but you can turn up every single week and lose every week knowing that you're improving slowly it's no good and you're gonna everyone's gonna go through this especially clubs that struggle when you're building or if you're you're taking over a coaching uh you're coaching a team and you're and you're trying to be successful when i first started coaching in bruno with dad um we ended up winning the national title the under 16 national title we played a team in the final that eight years before that game in the final we lost 16 nil to them and we still retained all those players because training was good the environment was good and even after getting belted 60 nil, it's the biggest loss I'd ever copped as a player. I wasn't playing, but the biggest loss I'd ever seen as a player, like physically, that I'd been a part of a team and as a coach. It was We just got hammered. And I'm sat there going, Christ, if somebody told me then, eight years eight years from, from where you were then, you're going to beat this team in the final. And bear in mind that this team, Moara Vela, they were called, they were the best youth team in the country. They were excellent. And we were building from scratch. We were charging $5 a session, imagine. That's what we charged. $5 a session, and we started with like six kids. And then ended up being 50 kids at the end of that eight years at our Friday sessions. And we took the best um, 13, 14 kids, and we played in the National League. We didn't concede um, until we played in the final where we conceded one goal, and we won 2-1. And we were literally basically getting reft out of it because we were all foreigners. But it was... The fact that we knew from the start, we had an environment, we had the base there. The pyramid was set. Getting to the pinnacle, is that's where every all the fancy stuff comes in. But if your base is poor, it doesn't matter how high you climb, you'll eventually, it'll eventually crumble. So the base was there, the environment was there, and the kids were persistent. And that's the main thing. You have to get players that are willing to go through a dark tunnel to get out the other end, knowing that they're improving. There's nothing wrong with showing up to training, getting belted every week, as long as in the back of your mind you're going, I'm in the right spot. Do you know what I mean? You need to be in the right place. Well, yeah, it's like anything, there's, there's tough times, but as long as there's improvement along the way, oh, you know there's, like, you'd rather be in a lower place with improvement oh. than stuck oh, 100%. just beneath the 100%. top. So I guess the biggest question and sort of how to take action as a coach is how would you create that environment? How do you create that culture what are the first steps you would personally take to try and build that if you came into a club and you want to build a culture what sort of players are you looking for what sort of environment are you trying to create and and how are you increasing the enjoyment and the fun and the attendance so that then the results of all of that comes so i've always been like when I like creating a culture or anything like that, the first thing, and this is the biggest thing for me, and this is a personal thing, like it might not apply to everybody else, but this is the first thing that I look at is when I turn up to a session as a player, and I, this is how I look at it first, because co- players always, whenever you're coaching, always reflect it, would I enjoy this myself? Because you imagine you build a program for your athlete and it sucks, yeah, right? Can you imagine you doing the program? You'd hate it. You'd be like, I don't want to do this. I don't know. 
No, no. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, but you know what I mean? I get what you different. mean. If, if you're building someone from the very floor up, they have no idea what they... They just have to do it. Sometimes yeah. you have to learn how to crawl before you can walk, before you can run, before you can sprint sort of thing. Well, that's why I've always had the philosophy and always had the work ethic of... I will never try and coach something that I've never personally done. 100%. If there's something I definitely want to program for somebody and know that it's going to be very beneficial to them... I will go and do a ridiculous amount of sets that will sort of hurt my progress in the pot in yeah 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 in the process. But I need to learn. But it hurts how your it process. Feels. But you also imp- like it doesn't. Yeah. If that makes. I sense. need to learn how it feels. Yeah. To do it, feel what mistakes they could possibly make. So yeah. then I understand at a greater depth of coaching what to do when they encounter those things because nobody walks in nobody walks up to a bar squats no dead no chance no chance with zero faults or nothing mm. you could fix obviously there's a sort of bandwidth of, of acceptable yeah. technique but there's always something you can refine with anything 100 oh, percent. this is the thing and this is why it's, it's my pet hate i'll get back to the coaching thing in a sec but my pet hate is the saying practice makes perfect there's no such thing practice makes permanent you can get permanently like a, there's a perm you can be permanently good at something where it's always there there's no such thing as perfect it's like a pet hate for me you can be really good at something but if you don't think you can improve you think it's perfect you're in the wrong place and that's that's nothing true said put but it in, on a bumper sticker put that yeah i know let's get it framed up here plastered on the wall um yeah it's always been mine mine and dad saying practice makes permanent there's no such thing as perfect it's the silliest saying um but back to the coaching. So I always looked at when I was coaching, when I was doing my A license, uh, when I was in Brunei, I remember turning up to the first national team session that I was allowed to take part in. I asked them, they said, sure, come and train. So I'd rocked up. The entire field was 4G, right? Now playing surface is irrelevant because you can only do with the facilities you have. But everything was set out. So I mean, I've rocked up. There was two full fields or two ha- the full field cut in half. One half was passing drills and everything. And we literally went from one drill to the next drill to the next drill to the next drill to a game. And it was an onslaught the whole session. Everyone could play. So it was never, it was never, of course we stopped and there was a few things that we had to pick up on, but it was a bloodbath here, bloodbath in the passing, bloodbath in the running, bloodbath in the passing again, an absolute war zone when we were doing the, the possession drill. And then we got in the game and everyone was kicking the lumps out of each other, but it was good football, right? And I, and I knew it was going to be a good session because I'd rocked up and I'd seen everything laid out. The amount of times I've turned up to sessions here and session starts in 20 minutes and the coach is putting out cones like 20 minutes before. Nothing set up. And I'm looking at it going like it doesn't set you up for success. It's little things like that that bug me. All the lights are off. and I hate it. I hate it. It's happened so many times. It's a pet hate for me. Failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Why that is such a famous saying is tell me if it's not true. Nobody, nobody has won anything of any significance without training. The best athletes in the world. Michael Phelps, six hours a day in a pool. Lance Armstrong, say whatever you want about the drugs. If everybody was on drugs, he still wins because he out-trains everybody. You look at Usain Bolt, ferocious in the gym. Gatling, all these sprinters, all these runners, everybody. Ronaldo. They, yeah. they, it's phenomenal from the same start. reason why we plan ahead and 100%. program and, and take the time to 100%. think about the long term impact of what we do now because it's just 
if you don't have a plan, then Oh, Siri, Siri's cut Siri's in for a sec. Yeah, Siri wants to butt in. If you don't have a plan, you never know where you're capable of getting to. And we always talk about it like when we do testing and when we sort of set an end goal, it is like walking through a tunnel with the lights on. It's, it's easy. Yeah. Well, my, my very first session, my very touching back on the thing, I have everything set up, but see, I'm... I'm, I do what Jose Mourinho does. I say I do what Jose Mourinho. Like, don't get me wrong, he's a god in my eyes with coaching. But he has, a, he has a session that he sets up. He has a full field, cut in half, one, one, one field there, one field here, four teams. And what he does is he plays um, this team v that team. So let's say blues v whites, uh, reds v greens, whatever. And they're playing each other. He gives everybody a number. He will shout a number out. So if he shouts number four, number four from this side of the field will run over to that side of the field and he'll start playing in that game while number four on this side of the field runs over to that side of the field. And it's his transition game. It's the first thing that he does every training session when he goes to a new team. So when he was at Chelsea, that's what he did. When he was at Roma, that's what he did. When he was at Man United, that's what he does. Um, or I think, because I remember when he first went to Chelsea and all the previous clubs he was at when he was at Porto, where was he before that? Inter Milan. Inter Milan, that's what he would do. Those were the drills that he did and every single player was like, it was phenomenal because the very first session they think we're going to be running. Antonio Conte, completely different, gets him in, runs him into the ground. The team's fitter, they're disciplined. There's a slight fear there. Whereas with Mourinho, he's maybe deemed a certain way in the press, but his players adore him. And that's what I'm like, that's this first session that I go to. And it just allows me to let the guys play. Because it touches back on you saying the kind of player I look for. When I first go to a club, or when I eventually first go to a club, I'm not looking to sign players. I'm looking to see who I can keep. Yeah. Then I can sign players. Whereas people go to a club, they go, we're going to a new club, I want this, 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 and this. And you never know who you're going to get rid of. And obviously you need personnel, but the idea of wanting to coach and, and my personal sentiments in the strength and conditioning world is you want to see your impact 100%, on somebody. 100%. You want to... like. For you as a coach, you would want to take in that 17, 18-year-old yeah. that's sort of a fringe player or a really good reserve-grade player that could never crack it in first grade. And you want to nurture and see how much you can 100%. benefit and progress them. And that's all coaching comes down to. And I think that's why coaching is the most important thing. 100%. Look, see, the other thing as well, it sort of bugs me. The under-16s that I had, we didn't win the league and we, we didn't actually come close to winning the league, but every player improved. I, I remember I took a player, um, it was an under-16 boy, Braden his name was. Now, I don't know if he's still playing, um, but I took him up under-16s at Western. Uh, his very first session, he just wasn't cut out for it. He wasn't fit, he was shy, and I looked at it and, and I remember a friend at the time was looking at me because he was watching me coach and he said, he said, do you think you're gonna keep this kid? I said, I'm going to keep him. I said, he's, he's got a good attitude. He's there. I said, I'm going to keep him. Like I had, I had set and I could have gone and got another boy that was probably better straight away. And I remember having him and his dad was the assistant coach. And I've never been one if a dad's part of the team. That's why I keep your player. I'm the polar opposite. You play because you train hard and you're, you're, you're good enough to play. Right, and I remember Braden was in it. Maybe six games in, he hadn't started a game. I started in one game, and I gave him some instruction. And I kid you not, he's gone out there and he has just followed it to a T. He followed it too much. 
Like it was so perfect what I asked him to do. I said, don't pass the halfway line. He'd run to the halfway line, you know, and you're stuttering as if you're going to fall off a cliff. That's what he would do. He was, oh, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like half time I'm saying, I adore that this is what you're trying to follow to a T, but you're like, I don't mean it like that. But, and, I, and from there and then, I'm not kidding. He is without question a player that has improved under me more than any other player that I've got. There's another one at uh, Jaffa's now, Brock. He, and I knew this kid was going to go far. He had a great attitude. He was a big, strong boy. And he was just, his parents were great. This is another thing. Parents matter. And his parents never, like I've had parents come up to me at training sessions and say, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And, I've, and I'm really polite and I don't say anything back. But like in the back of my mind, I'm saying, you're an electrician. I don't come to your work and tell you how to put lights in. Yeah. Right. And this has gone back to that young, being young, parents think that they, and same with everybody. And I think it's just the culture in general. It's not seen as a, like coaching, I guess, isn't seen as like a massively skilled profession. You don't. Like, you need licenses, but everybody sees your coaching licenses as, oh, it's just something they paid a bit of money for and did a weekend course. It's but not well-respected, like a trade or yeah. a degree. Or The other thing as well is, and this is, and I can understand why, to a certain degree, why it's looked at like that. You think of how many teams there are in, let's say, Newcastle. You've got your MPL teams. You think of how many youth setups there are. You then have the SAP programs and all that sort of stuff. You tell me how many qualified coaches are taking those sessions. Hardly any. Yep. 90% would be a, a father or a mother that's taking the sessions. I can't fault um, Josh's dad for taking the under 12 session in his own time unpaid. I can't get angry at that. I can get angry at a club saying it's, we're going to charge $1,500 for registration and someone's dad's going to coach you. Because you imagine you came to this gym and you just saw one of the students going, you're going to pay you're gonna pay 1500 bucks to come in here and be taught by someone's dad, not qualified. Yeah. You would never pay that money. But in football, it's deemed okay. That's why the licenses are so, not frowned upon, because people who understand the sport, and even not people who understand the sport, because it seems like I'm talking down, but like people who understand that it's a qualification that it's not easy to get getting an a license isn't easy it requires a lot of work especially with the afc doing it because there was exams and stuff and i didn't it's not like i knew i, I passed because i was good at it yeah. and i understood the game now don't get me wrong you can still there was a lot of guys on my course who should never have passed they should never have passed they still got their licenses but they were also in a country where they had to get people with qualifications whereas if you're doing qualifications in Australia and stuff, it's time out of work. It's it's all those things. So I can't fault people for having it. I fault people who don't have it and then deem it as meaningless because I could apply that to anything. Well, I guess it's the same sentiment as like fitness certificates. I consider it as just something you can just whip together real easily, not massively valued it's the same sort of thing well i see when i did my personal training certificate i, I like i completely agree it's too easy to get yep. it's far too easy to get whereas when i was doing my strength and conditioning course in dubai polar opposite it was so much more structured everything is like well, this is a regiment that we're following even the sessions were like that whereas personal training it's very much 10 reps do this how do you like there's bits and there's bits in the personal training thing of how to clean equipment complete there's no relevancy behind that it's, yeah. We're taking modules, three or four modules in, 
in the Cert 3 and 4 that isn't required. But having said that, the coaching, the air license has modules in there that, that we don't need to do. But it's the same with everything. They're like album fillers, yeah. They have to be in there. They yeah. have to be in there. So back to the point of, obviously, players. That's how we somehow sidetracked. Um, you're talking about how you progress some mm. young players. What what sort of few players do you see in the MPL that you really like the look of and would like to sort of take hold and nurture them and teach them, obviously, what you know about football? Which, co- which footballers would you want to coach? In the MPL? Yeah. It's funny. Three of them play for the same team. There's a lot. There's a, there's a few. My, the go-to guy that I, I, I love watching at the moment, I, like, I love watching him play. When he's not playing, I'm going, please sub him on. It's Greeny at Magic. Yeah. So much fun to watch. Two reasons. And it's, and it's not the football side of stuff. It's not the technical ability. It's his attitude. He comes on and it's literally a wrecking ball. It is come on, run your heart out. And he has a heart the size of a line. He's just relentless. The work ethic is... Oh, like I've, I've played with Greeny at Edgy and I remember extra sessions, no, optional just, sessions. Yeah. Never miss. But see, this is stuff, I don't see any of that. I don't see the extra sessions and stuff. So as a coach, I'm looking at it. Because every time I watch football now, I don't watch it as a player. I haven't played for three years. I don't watch any game as a player anymore. I watch it and I may say, I wish I... But I don't watch it and go, I could have done this. I could have done that. I watch it and I go, as a coach, what am I looking at? So I watch these games and I go, they should be better here. They should be better here. They don't look like they're coached in this situation, all this sort of stuff. But when I see a certain player like Greeny is just... A huge, huge, huge fan. Every time I watch him, like the most recent game was against Maitland. They don't win that FFA Cup game without him. Relentless, he gets in the box, he wins the penalty. And this is another thing that I love. Is He's a young man. How old is he? 22? Nah, younger. I think he's only 20. So he's 20. 19, let's, say he's, 20. let's say he's 19, 20 years old, right? You've got a 19, 20-year-old. Round of 32 is coming up. He wins the penalty. He stood there, ball in hand. I'm taking the penalty. Now, whether he's the penalty taker or not, you're not even 26, 27 years old. You're stepping up like the confidence on the kid. And that is something that you can, you, can, you can coach and gift. Not gift, but you can coach and increase someone's capacity to get better at that stuff. But you have to naturally have it. And you can just see the kid has it. And apparently before, he used to be a tiny, skinny kid. Yeah. He's bulked up. He's allowed. Like the weight on his shoulders now when he comes on, he's like, it's come on and do your stuff, Greeny. And he's, he's phenomenal to watch. But it's... Like you were saying, it's the intangibles. It's the stuff. It's not physical qualities. It's not because he's. No. It's not because he's a, the fastest player in the league. He's not None the strongest player in the None league. He's probably not the most technically gifted, but he does every. He does his job. Yeah. He does everything well. See, this goes back to it. Like the other two players are at Magic as well. Um, and this is funny. It's a player that I didn't rate when I first started watching it, and I I I love being proved wrong. I, I like I enjoy it. Like if somebody. If I watch somebody and somebody turns around and tells me, like, and I said, I don't rate this player because of this, this, and this, and he comes out and does the polar opposite and I'm proved wrong, I sit there and go, great, because there's some, I'm looking at, I like what I see. Um, and I'm watching this player, and it's, it's well, Bailey, is it Bailey Wells? Bailey Wells. Bailey Wells. Now, when I first started watching him, he, like, because he's still small, he's fragile, and I'm watching him and I'm thinking, he just got bullied in a few games, and I'm thinking, it's just not going to work. And he's literally, I've come and watched him the next game. And he had a good, and this is what I was saying to you about confidence. He had a really good game and it's just, it's like a fire underneath him. And he's just been great to watch. Tenacious, very similar to Greeny in his attitude. He's just technically 
very, very, very inept. He's a great player. Not and inept, adapt. He's great at that sort of stuff. And confidence, again, comes down to coaching and man management. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. you can fuel well, he, someone's they confidence. They've got the best coach in the league, without question. There's no, Nobody comes near him. Zaney is year after year after year, loses phenomenal players or really good players and replaces them with guys you never heard of that are great or better. Yeah. Um, and the last one is... Um, he's, he's a good friend of mine, but he's, I always put the friendship aside when I talk about, talk about the football stuff, is Keanu Moore. F- absolutely, without question, technically the best footballer in the league. It's a ball retention is great. I've always told him he needs to score more goals. That's something that, like, as a coach, I would love to try and get out of him. But it's, it's, it's interesting, Zaney's played him deeper this year, where at Edgy he was always higher up, and he was allowed to do that sort of stuff. And, and because he's playing deeper, he has to have more discipline. And it's actually brought a different side of his game now. He's, he's, more, he's on the ball more and stuff like that. And he is without... Like, it's, anybody can sit here and go, oh, this... Like, you find me a player that's got a better touch, better control on the ball, and a better passer, you, good, good luck. Yeah, like, I've played with Keanu both at Edgeworth and, and at Broadmeadow, and I always thought the same thing. He doesn't get on the ball enough. He's... Yeah always the best in small yeah, sided yeah. games at training always great touch good dribbling yeah like, like you don't you see shades of it in the game yeah. and it comes in and it's out it's also but. very difficult because in training you get the ball so much more I notice this when I train in training I'm so, I'm so much better than I am in games because you get the ball a lot and this is something where you need to be able to translate and this is a coaching thing you have to be able to translate the small sided stuff into the same system in a big game just the distance is bigger because you look when you watch um, Brazil do a really famous one where they play 11 v 11 in the penalty box. 11 v 11 in the penalty box. Two small-sided goals. And the football is phenomenal. But it's a, it's a war zone. And, it, and, it fought, and it, you can't hide. You cannot hide. Because everyone's getting the ball. You get screamed at. And at that level, it's so different. You've got Neymar, like just phenomenal footballers. But everyone gets on the ball a lot. And then you've got to be able to translate into a big game. And obviously that comes down to your personnel and your players and Broman Magic there's a lot of players there that I didn't rate last year or I wasn't I thought he would get rid of Zaney and he's kept them um, and they've like I, I, I obviously have a soft spot for them because a lot of my friends play for them but I, I've never been biased in the way like Maitland have got great players Jaffa's stacked with phenomenal footballers but I look at what Magic have especially when they started the season didn't start well for them they lost to Jaffa's they lost to um they lost that game against Hamilton, you know what I mean? And there was, there, was a, there was a part where I was watching it going, I don't know how they're going to do. And this is why, once again, I, I, like, I really like, love Zaney, the way he builds his sides. Yeah. He always manages to find it. But this is the thing. Every player that's ever played for him, and I always ask them, what's it like? Because I've had good chats with Zaney in, when I was working at Genesis and stuff. And he sits there and he just goes, I want my players to want to be professionals. Even if it's for one year and you get good stuff out of that. Well, yeah, obviously, I played under Zaney at both Edgeworth and Magic, and, like, both of those clubs I obviously no longer played for, um, but I couldn't say a bad yeah. word. Every hit, That was probably the, the peak of my playing time because I wanted to train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time, like, I remember at Edgeworth, Josh Lowe, um, even while Nate was still there, um, Nate, obviously, again at Magic, we had this goalkeeper group and we would turn up to training 45 mm. minutes early because we wanted to be ready and we wanted to play f- as best we could. Yeah. And it felt like a professional environment and it's where 
it's why every player wants to stay with him and follow him. Why yeah, you see Keanu all the time? Like yeah, he but he goes after these guys like Keanu, and I know there's a few others at Magic because obviously the whole Edgeworth Magic rivalry was so deep, and they hate each other and whatever you want to call it, and so players didn't want to jump ship. And I don't agree with every decision Zany makes. Like, obviously, I'm not. I, I, like, I'm critical with the way I like to do things, and he does things differently. He rotates his team far more than I ever would, but it works. And it. And but he has a system, and his players know that too. I remember watching one game. Keanu starts. He had a really good game. Him and Jose actually had a really good game. Next game, they're both on the bench, and I'm sat there going, like, if I was a player, I'd be going, why am I on the bench? But they understand that that's their roles, and they're fine. And they and and the thing is with Zany is he he times it perfectly. Yeah. He knows when it's time for these kind of guys. I do think that, um, and this is probably a thing that everybody does too much of us, they worry too much about, like, you know, they wear the GPS trackers and they say, I need to watch about loading and all that sort of stuff. We don't play enough football here for the, for the GPS trackers to give you enough information. So that would be my only, like, when I look at it, let the players play but I can't fault that and I think too like obviously from a strength and conditioning background there's bigger fish to fry in terms of injury prevention oh 100% very few players in the in the league can say that they put in enough work to say I should not get an injury oh no chance no chance like obviously um at Urban Base Fitness we put a really high emphasis on keeping players on the field the more we can expose the players to playing, the better they're going to get. 100%. We talk about it a lot with our youth athletes. If you have a long-term injury or you have some sort of um, injury at a really important time, you might miss trials, you might oh. not make the team. And in those formable years of your development, if you miss eight weeks, miss selection in a team, miss selection in destroy, a rep it team, a it can finish it. Yeah. Well, you look at look at me. I mean, my when I first did my knee, it was at was at Lakes, and I'm not saying that if I'd have played, we'd have done this or that. But I'm saying that I missed out. It was 2020, first of Feb 2020. I still haven't played a game yet, and I look back, and while I'm at peace with it now, and I'm working on the rehab, and it's everything is. I'm fine. I finally know that I'm going to play next year. I still look at it and I go, I missed two years of my playing career and I know people want to say oh there was COVID I don't care I'd rather COVID be there than me not be able to play because of my injury yeah and it just sets you back like even time out of the game it takes you so long to get back into it too oh it's 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 not the physical stuff the physical training I can tolerate I don't mind stuff being hard it's the it's what it does mentally to players and not everybody is built like I, I know physically there's fra- there's stuff where I'm fragile, but mentally I've always had my head screwed on, and I've never I've never like I've always had this sort of arrogance about me and this 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 confidence that I'm gonna be fine. But at times this even this even this injury to me, who I feel like a mental like I think I have this mental fortress where I'm undefeated, I can do whatever I want. Even me, I'm sat there like there are t- we've had this discussion. There's yeah. times where I've been emotional and I'm like I just want to give up. I'm on the phone to dad crying, going I've had enough. I don't yeah. want to play football anymore. And I want to cycle back to the psychological aspect and we'll talk about your injury. But just quickly to wrap up on the point of, of the qualities you want to see in a player, what are the things you would try and bring to um, well, the three you mentioned? Or even just to local footballers in general? Well, I would go look because those three guys, I wouldn't, like I said, it would be, I picked them because I know that that's something I want to work with. But there's so, there's so many good players in this league. 
but they don't have an environment to thrive. They turn up, and I think the biggest thing, like the physical qualities and stuff, of course you want certain players to be able to do certain things. But I've always been the kind of guy is, what can I get out of somebody that is deemed like an average for I want to know what I can get out of you. What can I physically get out? If I know you're an average, I know I've done it. I've done it to I've done it to Braden. Was an an okay footballer, and he and I and I and I know at the end of the season I looked at him and I said, "You are one of the best players in my team. You had the best attitude. You turned up to the sessions. You never said a word back to me. There was never if, but or maybe it was. I, I'll, I'll do it." And he used to ask. This is the one thing that players don't do enough of. I used to tell my players, "Ask me." how I can improve ask me what I think because it means that they care how many times you go to training and training's done they just leave I used to ask coaches what, what, what do you need from me I want to play every week what do you want and if a coach turned around and said I need you to be fitter great done I'm off running I'll run. yeah. then I know because then if I fix that and I'm not playing what else is it there comes a point eventually where you've exhausted your resources but like in terms of what I look for I look for a player and it's the same thing as I look for a player that wants to play football. They don't have to want to be a professional. But while they're, at, while they're playing for me, they have to want to be there. Then I can work on the other stuff. Because you can imagine, I can take 11 or 15 players that want to play, that are average. You can get really far. If you can get 11 or 15 players that are good footballers, that really want to be there, the, the world's your oyster. You can do whatever you want. What about for, obviously we're going to have some footballers listening to the podcast. What, what would you say to them from obviously a young, passionate, intelligent coach? What technical qualities, what physical qualities do you look for? Obviously the intangibles and the desire and the attitude is so important. What do you look for technically? Do you know what? It's funny. The thing I look for technically, and this is probably the most uh, it's it's the least coached thing because it's something that co- it's it's so hard to work on being good on both feet for the simple reason is it opens up the door to be able to do so much on both sides of the field and the reason i say this is there is a shortage and it's it's a specialized skill being a left back being a left winger being a left-sided center back and being a left-sided striker because the right hand is so dominant. It's, 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 I think it's like 70 or 85% of players in the Premier League, or I think, I think it's Premier League, I can't remember the stat, well, I had to do this for my A license, stats on certain things, and one of them was like 68% was dominant on one side, and the, the other remaining percentage was on this side, but they were chopped in and out for players that were still right-footed. And I look at that and I think, that is something that a player can work on. And it's just in training. Constantly using your left foot. And the thing is, is it's also, there's no right or wrong way. Like, I remember when you're doing coaching courses and stuff, a ball will get passed in and the coach will say, this is how you should touch. This is how you should take a touch. Then you watch Lionel Messi and the ball come across and he should take a touch with his right foot and he takes it with his left foot. Now, unless you are as dominant on one foot as Lionel Messi, learn how to use both feet. And at any age. And I say this because it just allows me as a coach to do so much more. It's so crucial. Like, it gives you so many more movement options. 100%. It allows you to be more balanced. It allows you to sell players so much more. And I guess to tie it back into strength and conditioning, because that's also part of our audience, it is the same as having endless amounts of mobility and and flexibility and ability to move through multiple ranges. They talk about a thing called dynamic systems theory we won't get into that 
We won't get into that on this episode, but it's really interesting. The more movement options your body has, it will take, ideally, the path of least resistance. But if if you're, say you're squatting, you squat to the bottom, you get stuck, or for whatever reason, your perfect movement path is unattainable. The person with more strength in different areas and more mobility in different areas will have the ability to work through an unideal path, but still complete the movement action. And when we talk about it further, there's a really fantastic little analogy and study. Um, But back to obviously using both feet, that balance and the and the 100%. amount of options you get allows you to do so many the other thing things as well is i always look at it it's like crossfit crossfitters are not the best athletes at any of the one movements that they do they're not they're not the best powerlifters. they're not the best weightlifters. they're not the best runners they're good at all of it right they're not the best at one of it they're good at all of it so because they're good at all of it they are able to to like the avenues at which they can do certain stuff allows them to do more and it's the same with football and I actually heard a great thing, and this was from Q. He goes, don't work on the stuff that you're bad at. Work on the stuff that you're really good at. Once that gets to a certain level, the stuff that you're average at will improve. So true. It's, yeah, it's one of those things you have to work. You have to work both ends. You have to raise your ceiling, but you also got to pull up the floor. So you got yeah. you got to push what you're good at. Yeah. Because if you just keep working on the bad stuff, you, yeah. like, it might not be the thing that the coach sees. Like if you want to get picked in a team and you're working on this quality, working on this quality, you're wasting resources on that on that other quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can work on multiple things. As a coach, like when I say left foot and right foot, I don't just mean if you can't excuse me, if you can't use two feet, you're not playing for me. That's that I don't see it like that. But I look at it and I go I want to. I want to see a player who is. I just want to see players that are constantly trying to improve, not just showing up. I hate that. I've got a pet hate for that, especially because I haven't played football for so long, and I'm in a phase now in the rehab and stuff with my knee where everything is. We're learning how to jump again. Stuff that I was good at before. I could jump before. I could move well before. But then, if I had come here in the before I'd done my knee, I remember Aaron taking me through the the whole protocol to see where I was at, and. I couldn't even get my foot over a hurdle without my hips jolting and all this sort of stuff. And I look at it and I go, now I'm starting from the base. And, and while it is different with football, I just want, I always like to see players who like, they want to improve. They and want to be there. I guess people get in a false sense of security if they're very good at something. Like if you feel like you're very good in the gym, if somebody comes to you and goes, hey, like you're doing this wrong, you could do this a little bit better, this is how it will help. You're a bit more resistant. The better you are at something, you're a bit more resistant. And that's where we talked about egos before. Players with phenomenal talent will have a slightly higher ego and are sometimes a lot harder to coach, but do they necessarily need that much coaching? I always go back to Ronaldo and it's massive ego, absolutely. I mean, you look at the, the current issue with him now wanting to leave and all that sort of stuff. But you never hear a coach and you never hear a player say that he isn't like he doesn't he isn't a great teammate. So uh, the ego to me, uh, there's, there's players in the NPL with great egos. I, I have a massive ego. The only difference is when it comes to certain things, my my ego doesn't affect my teammates. Yeah. The ego of other t- if it's when you are a cancerous teammate, and I've played with them. I had them. I, I, like I said, I don't I'm not here to mention names and stuff, but I played with players like that. They were really good players. 
And if they just didn't have that, the ability that we could have, the ability that they could have like unlocked would have been. But the other thing as well is, if they don't want to be there, and they don't want to play professional football, or they don't want to play football, that's fine. That's down to the coach to go. You don't belong here. And I would never take a play. I don't mind players back answering me or saying, "I think this is wrong." You think this is wrong? Great. Tell me why. He yeah. goes, "I think we should try this." I will always stand there as a coach and go, "Fair enough. I'll try that." But if he says, "I don't want to do this," I don't want you to be here. Same thing goes with egos. Coaches can't have egos. Feedback no and conversation is really important. Yeah. There is no gatekeeping. If you, when somebody, this is a thing. I always, people ask my opinion. I give it and they just think, oh my God, you're right. No, no, no. You ask me, I'm telling you. I'll tell you why I think that. Now, if you want to relay a message back and you have some, like an actual, no, it doesn't even need to be Evan-based, but give me a reason as to why. It's the same, it's the age-old debate, Messi, Ronaldo. People ask me, why do I think Ronaldo's better? I'll give them reasons. But I also give them reason as to what Messi does that's unparalleled to certain people. Yeah, and you got to be able to see both sides yeah. of you it. You can't. You yeah. can you can take a side, but you have to be able to. Yeah, greatness is both achieved. Sides. All the best athletes have at one point been have at one point been knocked down a pedestal. All of them, every yeah. single one of them. Let's circle back, and then we'll try and move on to your ACL story. Uh, any other technicalities? Technical qualities, no. Like it's, of course, you want people with technical ability and stuff, but it's not. It's not what I look for. The attitude and all that sort of stuff. And I know it's like harped on, but technical ability and stuff like that. If you're playing first grade here, it's very rare, especially at the better clubs. It's rare. Everybody that's currently playing first grade in the MPL can improve. Now, I'm not saying that someone at Adamstown could play for Jaffers every week, or someone at Jaffers should be playing at Man City every week. But I'm saying that in a better environment. Um, players will improve, and you, you've seen that. You look at you look at Zaney and and like Bolchi, some of these guys. Players thrive under these kind of people. Why? That's that's the other yeah. thing as well. Why was he good at this club? Why was he bad at this club? One coach goes, he had a bad attitude. Why? And why do some players thrive under some coaches and some different coaching styles? It just depends on what works for their yeah. learning style. It's back to the age old. How do people learn? Yeah. Uh, physical qualities, because obviously in a gym, we're also going to chat with S&C coaches. I know personally you have a history with strength and conditioning and you value it quite highly. What do you look for? It's not, this is the one thing, and this was prior to me doing the injury. It is not optional. When I coach a team, you will spend, if, I, if I'm in Newcastle, the team is in here. They're in UVF. I'm not saying you have to come to UVF. I'm... I'm not biased with this sort of stuff. I've had the luxury of training here. I've trained at Cornerstone, which, by the way, is a great gym. There's a lot of good gyms. I'm not the kind of guy who goes, don't go there. There's a lot of good gyms in Newcastle. But in terms of you want to become the best athlete, you want to become the best athlete for your sport, and specifically sport being football, because that's obviously the stuff that I know. That's the stuff that a lot of a lot of the athletes that come here play, among other sports. But it would not be optional for me. Players come to the gym for the SNC side of stuff because it is like you said I want my players to play every week and when I look at someone like Bailey Wells such a great little footballer but I, he's fragile physically yeah. and if he plays up against you put you imagine you've got a, a team full of greenies which is what professionals would be like they would yeah. all be as fit as him they'd all be as tenacious as him now you imagine them playing players who are really good technically, they'll just run over the top of you. So I want my team to be physically... The physical side of stuff is something that God has given the ability to 
I say of, uh, to everybody, but the ability to be able to work on your physical prowess and stuff was given to everybody. There's no excuse why you can't be strong. And I think move the, well. the other really important thing, same as the right and left, is movement options. If I can get to more balls, oh. I can affect more situations. Yeah. If I'm stronger, I can go into challenges that I otherwise 100%. wouldn't. If I can jump higher, I can now challenge for headers. It opens 100%. up all the options to then develop your technical ability better. I say this all the time to my footballers. If you can get to a spot quicker, you now have more time. If you can push, if you can create space through mm, agility from a, a from, yeah. from a defender, you now have an extra second. You now can have a good first touch. And every time you get separation, you can work on your first touch and improve that even further. It's like, I used to be quite unfit as a as a young kid and I always had my brain was ticking I've always had a football brain and and wanted to do things but I was overweight and I could never do them and physically yeah. I I didn't have the option to have time to to say I peeled away from a defender to play a pass the defenders there before me I don't even get to that ball I don't yeah, get the opportunity yeah, yeah. to learn and, and practice and mm. and feel out situations um, but it's one of those things like I'm obviously always going to preach it as a strength and conditioning coach and I've seen massive benefit with all of my footballers but it's I think it's a non-negotiable even if you do the bare minimum to yeah. stay healthy yeah 100%. because because especially in the modern the like the field conditions this season are the worst they've ever been and the amount of non-contact injuries is a hundred percent related to that if you don't think it's related you're kidding yourself oh 100 percent. well look at that 4g Spears point had a big thing where there were, they, there were people talking about wanting to take them to court and stuff because of injuries with the facility because of the field now i know that that's 4g and that's different but can you minimize that and the answer yeah. is a thousand percent yes and Injuries are going to happen. It's the nature of sport. Mm -hmm. But why would you not do something and open yourself up to a higher risk? That's oh, that's my philosophy. It's not that hard to do. You just have to yeah. have it's, the right people. The thing is, is, it's like you said, you need to have the right people. And some of it is mundane. Because people who are good athletes, like myself, somebody told me we're going to learn how to jump. I'm going, I can already jump. I don't, what do I need to learn how to? Now I'm in a position where now I really understand where I lacked. And what I lacked mobility and all this sort of stuff. Like, you take how many players be able to just touch their toes. I reckon 60, 70% of the league would struggle to wake up in the morning and touch their toes. Then you look at the top athletes who wake up and they're supple. But they put themselves in these positions. LeBron James, these guys, they have played father Like this idea that no one's beaten father time. They batted father time. Because they're still playing. And they're playing at a top, top level. Messi... Messi is how old? 30, 34. Ronaldo's 37. They're still playing. This is not, it's not an easy sport to play at that level without the consistency that they have. And if you want to see the benefits of improved technology and improved physical preparation practice, it, it's exactly that. Players are lasting longer. Oh, Tom Brady. It's, it's incredible. There's obviously still a similar amount of injuries, but the recoverability of the injuries as well the rehabilitation has progressed massively the other thing as well and this is something that uh, i know we 
we don't touch on it a lot, but it's genetics reigns supreme. We all know that. It's something that is genetics is a big. Well, look, look it yeah. can be like, yes and no. It is, but like with with athletes and stuff, the better the better athlete you are. Like if you're gen, well, you look at my roommates were Nigerian, unbelievable, just built like anything, and they were genetically just so much fitter and stronger. And at a young age, they were great. But once you catch up. Yeah. At 24, it's catch, you know what I mean? It's that's one of those things, it's it's a head start and that's yes. a that's a debate when we talk about yeah. um, youth and talent identification. I think it's a phenomenally interesting topic. Obviously, mm. kids born earlier in the year develop earlier. Mm. Kids that hit puberty earlier get more opportunities because they are bigger, stronger, 100%. faster. But that's not to say that as a smaller footballer or a smaller frame or if you less favorable genetics that you can't put in the work and, and get just as just See, as the, good the, benefit. So when I when I'm touching on the genetic ring supreme, I mean that if someone's genetically let's say you've got two versions of me. You've got one who's genetically better and then one who's not. If we're both working at the same rate, the guy's genetically better, you reign supreme in that respect. Now when I talk about football and the size thing, size to me means that this like back to Bailey Wells, small skinny kid, great footballer. I would never worry about his size. I just look at unlocking that bag of potential physically that he that he doesn't have. Because I always go back to like Messi and Iniesta. They're tiny. But you try getting the ball off Iniesta. Yeah. Good luck. But physically, his, his, his ability to be able to cover ground and run and be able to get there, you'd be amazed at how good an athlete he actually was. It's like you look at jiu-jitsu or oh. any of those sort of martial arts. Why can a smaller man yeah. take they down the hands on you, you're close. It is... All down to leverages, body positions, mm. technique is everything. But that's where like we love to teach sprint technique, change of direction technique, how you hold up the ball. That's one we do with all our youth kids because if they can learn, especially the smaller frame kids, if they can learn how to hold up the ball and learn how to to get more physical, they develop physicality and they develop the ability to to stand up to the big guys that might be a little bit further ahead in their development and that looks really impressive on the field like you see a little kid absolutely boss a bigger defender you're going this kid's got something special yeah 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 that's the talent i don't like you say talent well it's the same as as greeny he's not the biggest frame he's not somebody who you look at as a steam train but he pushes players off the ball Mm. he's strong as anything he positions his body really well he He's, oh, I wouldn't he's say got he's a, the smallest guy. Either. Oh, he's, he's, like, he's, he's, a, he's gotten. I know what you mean. Yeah. But I know what you mean. He's not you know, not looking at him and thinking twice. He's Sergio Ramos, but he uses the body that he has. He uses, and he's not small. Like he's, he's just some stocky. He's small. not Akin Fenwar. No, he's, yeah, he's not Akin Fenwar. But he he's steamrolling. And I dogged just, mentality. Yeah, but that's it's the, the big biggest one. thing. It's that. That's my favorite thing about him. Is it, if I said Greeny, go on there and kick ten blokes, he'd go and kick ten blokes. You can't beat that. This is Kante, N'Golo Kante. You can't beat a guy with a spirit like that. And then you add all the other stuff, great. So I think it's a good little segue talking about rehabilitation, Mm. talking about physical qualities, the ACL. Obviously, not many many people will have heard the story in full. A lot of people might be like, oh, Sam, he was playing, Mm. tore his ACL. It's been two and a half years. Why is he not back? Does he not want to play? I'm sure you've been told to give up football more times than you've been told to to push through and come back. Mm. 
can we have a little rundown on the severity and just everything that's happened with the ACL? So my knee, uh, I was playing at Lakes, was against Maitland, jumped up in the air, landed, nothing, no contact, nothing. Landed on my knee, right knee first, and basically what happened was I thought my kneecap had dislocated. Fell to the floor, had scans and stuff, found out when I went to Rob Dingle, the physio, that when I'd fallen, my ACL had snapped instantly. And my femur, the actual femur, was what collapsed and moved away from the um, my kneecap and everything. So it completely fell apart. It was literally, imagine you're getting, you got two, uh, like you get an egg and you grab a spoon and you smash the top of the egg. You see how it ripples and the cracks? So my femur, as it came back and smashed against my knee, it did that, did that effect and it's like cracked and there was a whole bunch of cracks. And I did my ACL, I did my MCL. Hey Siri. Series back. I did my ACL, tore my MCL, tore my LCL, uh, tore my meniscus, fractured bits of the femur, and tore my PCL. So basically... I mashed potato the knee. That is everything in the knee. So basically what Sam's saying, he broke his thigh bone. So that's the femur. Fractured it. Fractured. Fractured. Well, Um, bad enough. And then pretty much all the ligaments around the knee. So things that support the front the back, the sides, prevent rotation, mm. support um, support against sort of the knee moving in or out and preventing that movement and holding the knee stable. He basically mashed everything and even the sort of cushioning in between the knee, the meniscus, lots of damage to that. So pretty much cooked knee. Yeah, smashed it to bits. Now, the big thing was when I first seen Rob, he said, be prepared to, like, the thing is, um, when you do your ACL, that's not the issue. It's when you do your PCL as well. Now, it is frowned upon to get your ACL surgery the same time you do your PCL because the rehab is different for both. ACL rehab is your, Siri just loves popping up. You have to turn Siri off. Um, ACL rehab is different to the PCL. So one is side to side, one is backwards and forwards. Or I think that's right. You'd probably have to correct me on that sort of stuff. Yeah, so the ACL, the main injury mechanism is um, rotation of the knee, hyperextension of the knee. And it's one of those things where it comes from a lot of It comes, <laughs> we're trying to turn cereal. Uh, it comes from a lot of different mechanisms, um, but basically the ACL supports and prevents the shifting of your shin bone forwards. Yeah. Um, so that's the common test to see if there's ACL damage. Yeah, you'll see that. You'll see the tibia will shift forwards in front of the knee. So it basically prevents you from doing any sort of change of direction activity. Um, and prevents you from doing any sort of hard decelerations. See, it's real weird because you know that test? So I I had that test the day I did the knee and then I had the test when I could actually, the knee could actually give me some movement because when the swelling was so severe um, and I never had that movement. So Scott, not Scott, sorry. Scott's my housemate. <laughs> um, Rob Dingle, he, um, he said to me, he said, uh, obviously surgery was on the books. But he also said to me that it's good that I didn't have the instability. I then went and saw Jai Kumar, who was my surgeon. This was about f- four months after. three, four, four, four months after, right? And at that point, I could run, I could hop, 
because I remember being in here, I was doing stuff with, with you guys, you and Aaron, and I was hopping and stuff. And if, I'd have t- if you'd have just walked in the gym and seen me, you'd never have said I'd done my ACL. If you'd have been in the session with me, obviously, because there was stuff I couldn't do, but hopping I could do. And Jai, the surgeon, basically said to me, he goes, try and do the rehab um, and not have surgery. And I did that, and I got to a stage where I was really strong. I haven't had, to this day, touch wood, I haven't had an instability episode in my knee since February when I smashed it to pieces. I have no instability, no jolting, no collapsing of the knee, nothing. The only reason I had to have surgery was my meniscus got caught, and it just caused too much pain for me to play. So, obviously, Aaron and I took care of most of Sam's early rehab, the, the first phase of it, so pre-surgery. We went down a non-operative route, um, so he was considered a COPA, which is where basically you just aim to strengthen every structure around the ACL and you exist and play without an ACL. And you just basically make yourself as resilient and as sort of strong and held together as possible. Um, And we got Sam to a really good point. Aaron and I still uh, have some disagreements with Sam over whether we think he could have played. I believe that he could have um, got back to playing at that point but yeah there was still a m- meniscus obstruction yeah. which prevented him from getting to full knee extension see the surgeon said like my I, to this day I wish I just got the meniscus snipped and I didn't put the ACL back in because I don't think I'd have had an issue I think I'd have played fine but it was his his thing was the meniscus was caught and it stopped me from extending and because it stopped me from extending the reason I'd never had any instability without the ACL was because the meniscus would literally halt any movement where instability might start to come through. So it so was be- just a... Because Sam did get to a point where he was so strong and, and quite competent with, with movements, he never had any sort of rotational instability, but the the fear was that the meniscus was preventing that hyperextension yeah. mechanism. And he's, um, his thing was, I said to him, I said, I said, look, Joe, what would you do if it was me? Like, if it was you. And he turns around and goes, if you're my son, if I'm going to operate on you, I just get everything done. He said, for the simple reason that we snip your meniscus, you go and play, you buckle, you start all over again, and we do this all over again. He said, let's just get it out of the way. Now, when I had surgery, I had the ACL reconstruction. My PCL had healed, thankfully. I didn't need surgery on that. But I had something called a lateral loop done, which is they cut a massive gash into your ITB, they grab a piece of the ITB and they pull that down through into where your ACL is. So you've got the graph from your hamstring and the ITB piece that they pull down. And basically, it, the reason they do that is it's double the strength sort of thing, better in the long term, better in the short term. The only thing is, is it's very harsh on the first few months of rehab because obviously there's a massive scar through here. And that's... COVID also hit multiple things, just halted my recovery from surgery. Both COVID lockdowns I had two COVID different lockdowns. phases. Yeah, so. so I had the first surgery, COVID hit. I then got something called a Cyclops lesion, which is one in every three years. I happened to get it on top of everything else. Like I just had a big shovel of shit dumped on my head, essentially. <laughs> and look, I... I won't lie to you, like the first few, because I know we're going to touch on that, the mental side of things and all that, but... Like, the f- the day after I did it, I've got this text message on my phone. The day after I did it, I got this text message on my phone, and it's between me and dad, and I was crying. Uh, 
all night. I was led on the lounge, couldn't move, was crying all night. I spoke to dad the next day, he said, how are you? I was crying then. Later that night, I texted my dad and I sent him a message. I said, dad, I'm going to win player of the year. That's what I said to him. And I've got the text message screenshot on my phone and I've held that. The only reason I said it, it's not like I, it was just, it keeps me going because it is such an arduous and tough like thing to go through and i know loads of people go through it but it wasn't just the acl for me it was the acl the lcl the pcl surgery second surgery and um, the double re the double re, you know so I mean? he got to the point where playing was in sight he was probably a couple months yeah. off playing and then it's essentially issues complications redid it so it's yeah it's essentially like three two and a half acl reconstructions in one that's literally what I've gone through. It's as if I've done my ACL three times by the time I play again. It'll be over a thousand days. And for those so, cheering Sam on through the Instagram and at home, he is lifting really well. He's moving really well. We're getting a lot of progression at the moment, which is really, really positive. Yeah, it's been the best. He's meant been. to be running, but he hasn't been. <laughs> we, have a, yeah. uh, we have a long-standing bet. Uh, and he's got to run 20Ks by tomorrow because yeah. um, so he didn't do it. 10 kilometers tonight and then 10 kilometers tomorrow. So I won't be able to walk for four days, but I still have my pride. So all good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's progressing really nicely. He's set the date for next season. He will be there. I'm Isn't confident that? of it. Uh, a few people might not be, but That's okay. Sam will disagree. Um, and I think that ties us in really nicely to our last sort of major theme of today which is the psychological battles and how he's coped with such a severe and such a just painfully long mm. and arduous recovery and rehabilitation so how did you cope i didn't for six months six months was shocking like for me it was i've never had issue with mental health side of stuff and i don't want to talk on something that is such a prevalent thing in the world now and it's something that i can't say that i've struggled with um but when i first did my knee it was probably the closest to depression that i could have ever been at like i, I hated everything my i was i was in a relationship at the time and even that was strained and they were supportive towards me they were loving towards me and i just wanted nothing to do with anybody i didn't want to speak to anybody i didn't want to see anybody i didn't want to talk to anybody about football nothing i hated so much about the game because it was literally like you imagine you, I, I've jumped in the air how many times I've messed around I've jumped off my bed I've jumped off Ninja Park I was working at I played basketball every lunchtime I jumped and jumped and jumped all of a sudden I'm playing football now I jump up in the air I land and my knee goes one way and my body's in Dubai like I just mashed <laughs> potatoed myself and it was it was coming to terms with being a good athlete being a good footballer and literally now being like I'm not saying that I'm not a good footballer, I'm not a good athlete, but like I'm so far away from that to where I was. And I guess I mean? especially for someone like Sam, where football is his love, football is his passion, hobby, sport, it's it sort of removes a bit of your identity almost. Well, the other thing as well, people don't realize is I don't have family here. Like family and friends I've made here. I don't have my mom and dad here. I don't have any siblings. Not, nobody, not, none of those people are in this country. I came to this country on my own and the family that I've built, the friends that I have, the people that I love have all come from this sport. Regardless of what people say, oh, you played for Singleton. It doesn't matter. 
I've been able to travel the world. I've lived in amazing countries and I've played really good standards of football and I've played terrible standards of football. But none of that prepares you to then have it taken away from you. It's like, it's the biggest fear for me. I always used to say, and it's so funny, I used to see people in a knee brace and I used to say to my partner at the time and I would say to like my mates, whenever I see people in a knee brace, I just go, poor bugger's done his ACL or poor girl's done her ACL. And I used to say, I never want to be that person. And then I did my knee. And it was literally like just getting, not that I've ever been shot, but like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm sat there going, what I'm known what I know I'm good at, what I, I love doing has just been literally taken away. And there's no glimpse of being back in it. It's toys out the pram, boom, you're on your own, done. Yeah. Deal with it. What started the turnaround and the turning point for, for you in terms of getting out of that just almost like a free fall of, of not knowing where you stand? And Three things. Three things for me. Um... And I learned this from what from my parents, but Conor McGregor said it. He goes, "A lack of like a lack of effort and determination is an insult to the people that care about you." My dad and mum have spent phenomenal amounts of money on me. If ever I want to buy something, dad will send me money. If ever I want like my my surgery, he paid for. If I struggle with money, I message him, dad, I need help, and he not once has he ever said no. It's always been, "You need it, I'll give it to you." And I and there were times where I wanted to quit. Like I was talking to dad recently, I was like, I might just give it in. And he goes, he goes, okay. Like he doesn't even bat an eyelid. And deep down I'm sat there going, it's not okay. Like he, and I'm not saying that I have to do this for them, but I'm saying that if I don't try, it's not that they will, my parents will never think that I've let them down, but I feel like I have. So for me, it's like, I have to play football again, whether it's at a high level or not, I have to come back to be able to look at my dad and say, I tried. The second thing is, there's a lot of people that have said that they rate me this way or that way, and it's a vendetta, and we've discussed this. It's a big vendetta for me now where I've got the attitude of, you don't rate me, that's fine. If I come back and I'm healthy, it's, it's all out war. And I know that's not always the best way to look at it, but I don't care. And the last thing is, I need to prove myself right. Like... I know what I'm capable of. I know the player that I was before I ever came to Australia and I will die before I don't attempt to be him again. I keep hearing stories all the time from Sam about a left foot rocket. <laughs> uh, I'm yet to see it happen. Look, but I, 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 one thing I will say is two feet, it's, not, it's never been, it's one thing that I've been, I, I say gifted, but it wasn't a gift. I worked on it. I worked on it at a young age. Das forced me, but like being two-footed is, yeah. She's she's definitely a rocket. But like I said, it doesn't matter if I can't play. It'll Hope, forever be a cat in the box. Hopefully, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Cat in the box. Hopefully, he doesn't get two-footed first game back. Yeah, well, please, there's a few that probably want to do that to me. But look, please be nice to him first game back. No, 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 don't, don't. You treat me like Peg I've him. been playing every day. Peg me. Peg him. Um, self belief. So obviously, we've touched on on a bit of that what makes you feel like you have such a set mentality? It's, it's a good question. A few things. One, why, like, we live, and I know it's, it's going to sound cheesy, but you live one life, right? And, and it's become more prevalent me since COVID hit and since the injury, how easy it is for something to get taken away from you. 
people's freedom was taken in terms of COVID. You're all in lockdown. You're not allowed to do whatever you want to do. And then like people's literally the whole world changes. And I look at it and I go to myself, why on earth when things have returned and I'm allowed to do something, I don't want to, there's nothing wrong. And people take this the wrong way when I say this. I don't want to be average. Then there's nothing wrong with that. I tell people when they ask me, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? I'm going to be in the Premier League coaching. Whether it's coaching or playing, people laugh at me. But And I always say to them, if 10 years ago Logan Paul had told you he was going to fight Floyd Mayweather, people would have laughed at him. So I look at it and I go, there is nothing wrong with having ambition and having dream. I fear for the people that don't have that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And why uh, my biggest thing when when we've spoken about this is why would you give up on your dreams just because there's a little two-year pause on your career or in sam's case a few year pause he if you want something enough continue to work at it if you don't get there it just wasn't other doors other doors open and this is this is why the rock Dwayne Dwayne johnson is why something he means so much to me because he tried to get in the NFL. He didn't get in the NFL. That didn't deter him. He found something else to do. And I look at it and I go, you look at the man that he's become, his mantra, his aura, his whole idea behind the way he lives, the way that he lives, the things that he does. Don't get me wrong. Hard work and stuff like that. I haven't worked anywhere near as hard on the things that I should have done when my dad was telling me to do them. And I know that now, but it's like, I'm in a position now where the whole, everything about my football, everything about my coaching, it's all in my hands. Nobody can take that away. And people are going to sit here and go, he's arrogant and he's all this sort of stuff. And that's fine. I don't care about that sort of stuff. But when when people say, in order for you to be successful, you have to, if I want to do something in 10 years, I don't have to be doing it now to get there. Do, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like It's like the age old thing at school. What do you want to be? How is a 16 year old kid supposed to know what he wants to be? I've worked in like seven different industries. I was in a, I was a chef. I've worked as a, I've worked in a sheet metal factory. I've, uh, I've got a trade in window fitting. Um, I worked uh, as a personal trainer. I did like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. nobody. That's not. That's you like never know. seven different industries. And I still don't know what I want to do. But all I know is that football is at the forefront of my life. How much is community and your friends and? Uh, obviously us here at the gym how much has that helped you through and along the process because it it can be a lonely road and that's what that's the sentiments that you hear a lot with long-term injuries but how has your team and your community helped you it's really funny it's polar opposites my friends always take the mick out of me and my knee and stuff but I, i like that's the friendship group that we have and I wouldn't change it for the world. I love it when I say that I'm going to do something and my mate goes, you're a donkey. You're not going to get anywhere in life. But they don't mean it that way. It's just like we're joking around. It keeps me on my toes. I love my friends. I've had issues with close friends and we've had arguments and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I always look at it as I want the best for them. They want the best for me sort of thing. And, I, and that's the circle. I would never I would never change that side of stuff. Then in the gym... Without, and I've said this to my dad, without UBF, I never play football again because I don't have it. And, and this is coming from me who is so narrow-minded with, when I say narrow-minded, I'm so like laser-focused on wanting to play again. I know that I needed help. Do, do you know what I mean? I needed yeah. the assistance to play again. And I came to Aaron and I came to Declan and easily the best. And I've had the luxury of playing or cope up, like working under great strength and conditioning coaches but nothing has been, my strength has gone through the roof. Like I move better. Even now, 
I move better than what I did when, when I was playing. And I know I'm limited at the moment with certain things, but eventually there's going to come a time where I'm not going to be like that. And without you guys and Aaron and this gym and like, you know, the support of my parents at home and stuff, I don't play again. And this is, this goes back to the whole thing of this is why I won't quit. You've put a lot of time, regardless of whether I pay you or not, you've put a lot of time and energy into me. I would feel like I've let you lock down if I just give up. And that's my biggest thing. Like it's, it's not an option for me. From, from my perspective, it's past, like it's not a client trainer relationship it is sam is a genuine friend and i want to see him back in football Mm. and i want nothing more than for him to go out get two-footed pop back up keep on running and Mm. then score a worldie with his left foot rocket (laughs) (laughs) and then do his his trademark celebration you've got to keep an eye out for it it is phenomenal it's great two and a half years in the making (laughs) that's a good one um but yeah we want nothing more than to see sam back and we want the same for anybody that's injured that's our whole purpose as a gym is to promote high quality bring professional services and the things you would get in a professional environment to those who deserve it who are the hard working yeah. up and coming people and i say this to everybody and, I, and i'm I, I am biased but i'm also i give credit where credit is due to anybody who's listening to this or playing and you want to be a better player or you want to be a professional footballer, I'm telling you, you're not going to make it as a professional unless you have got the guidance of a strength and conditioning coach or someone coaching-wise. You need that. And now, unless you're willing to do it yourself, I've been a personal trainer, I was doing my strength and get it, and there's no chance that I would have been able to coach clients and do it myself. It's so hard. And I always tell people, all the best athletes in the world have someone that trains them. All the best coaches in the world have someone that they learn from. And and it's know, not just strength and conditioning. You need everything. a mentor and everything. Yeah. You need somebody who fuels the fire for 100%, you to, 100%. to increase. Well, I think, last point, any advice you'd give to people struggling with long-term injury because you've been in their shoes? <laughs> Two things. First would be, it's, it is long. It is a dark, lonely road at times. So find the people that you get on with that are supportive of you. And... I always say this, ask yourself if at the end of your playing career, whenever that may be, for some people it's longer, for some people it's shorter, at the end of your career, will you be satisfied with the decision that you make during the tough time? So if the tough time is, and the same with me, I've had times where I want to quit and I look at myself in 10 years time, I would have been disgusted with myself if I gave up. Giving up is easy. And I refuse to be, I refuse to be that person. And I, I, everyone's slightly different, so I don't want to speak for everybody else. But if you're content with giving up and you're happy with that decision, good for you, great. I hope you find purpose doing whatever it is that you want to do. But if you are struggling in this, like you don't want to continue the rehab or whatever it may be, if the answer is I need to do it, just keep doing it. It's the power of one. I actually learned that today. Um, a guy was saying like, I want to give up and his dad looks at him and he just goes just keep going for one more day it's so true yeah. and the next day just keep going for one more day and before you know it in a year's I'm going to be playing in a year's time I'm literally going to be sat here we'll be doing episode God knows what and I will be laughing at like the journey to where I am I'll be like look at where I am now and look at where I was back then but it, it's the making of the person now you have to do it it's on recording yeah true, you have true, told true. enough people that you're gonna I be have back told, but. but i'll be back 1000 percent. i'll be back
So short-term goal, return to football. Short-term goal is return to football. Long-term goal, and this is like my big 10-year plan, is I want to coach in the Premier League. It's not that. I want to coach professional football. I don't care if it's in the Premier League. I want to coach professional football. I want to be, if I never play professional football, which I'm at peace with, I want to be the first player who's never played at any decent level. And when I say decent level, I mean like never played full-time professional football and still coach at professional level because that's non-existent. You name me one coach now who hasn't at least played professional football, whether it be for one game. They don't exist. I want to be that person. Any other goals outside of football and coaching? Yeah, outside of football and coaching, I want to date an absolute worldie and I want to drive a uh, Aston Martin. And I know people go, I think, but like, why not? There need to be things that are completely different from football that keep me like sane. If you're coaching in the Premier League, you might get that. True, 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 true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I just... I want to be happy, I want to be healthy, I want to be strong, I want to be injury free, um, and I want to just play football, enjoy it and love it. And I want my friend, you know what I want? I want to coach, before I get to that, in the short term sort of stuff, the five, six years, I want to coach people that I've grown up with here to a league title. I want to play with them, I want to win stuff with people that I, people that I love and people that I'm friends with. Well, I think it's a good time to wrap up. I think we've covered everything we wanted to yeah. talk about. It went a little bit longer, but it's an important episode because Sam's going to be a co-host um, for our footballing-based episodes when we're going to be interviewing coaches, chatting to coaches, yeah. and anybody in and related to football. So thank you, Sam, for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure.